In October, Conservative candidate Bolsonaro won the Brazilian presidential election with 55% of the vote. This is a surprising shift for a country previously run by the Workers' Party from 2003 to 2016. And with its use of hateful rhetoric around marginalized groups and the violence this has already led to on the streets, alarm bells have been ringing in the human rights world. I'm Nusha Bastani. And I'm Max Curtis. From the University of Cambridge and the Center of Governance and Human Rights, this is Declarations. So everyone's asking, how did Bolsonaro win? What does this mean for Brazil's future? But his victory also raises more systemic questions, not just about the rise of far-right parties globally, but also about the legacy of Brazil's not-so-dated dictatorship and the lack of intergenerational memory about authoritarian human rights violations, which Bolsonaro seems to condone and maybe even praise. Some of the most significant resistance was led by women. So in this episode, we're taking a hard look at the role of memory and gender in the rise of Brazil's far right, and in particular, what this means for the country's most marginalized groups. So our guest today, who we're lucky to have to help us make sense of all this, is Dr. Malu Gato. Her work explores the gender dynamics of political behavior, representation, and policymaking with a focus on Latin America, especially Brazil. She's a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Zurich with a PhD from Oxford. And this coming year, she'll be an assistant professor of Latin American politics at UCL, University College London's Institute of the Americas. Thanks for joining us, Malu. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here today. Great. So where should we start? Okay. So let's start with some context because there's obviously a lot happening. This has been all over in the news. So could you just contextualize for our listener what has been happening maybe in the immediate lead up to the elections? Okay. So actually, I'll just take us a little bit further back um, to give you a bit of a broader context, because to understand these elections, I think it's also important for us to understand what happened in the previous elections. Um, So I would say that all of this started really um, in 2014. So in 2014, we held presidential general elections in Brazil, and Dilma Rousseff uh, won for a second time. But at that time, she already won by a very small margin of three percentage points. And she won against the PSDB candidate, Aécio Neves. Now, when we think about Brazil's uh, recent democratic history, this was a very traditional election because we had the PT, in other words, the Workers' Party, against the PSDB um, in the second round of elections. And this has been more or less how, how politics um, at least at the national level, has been structured in Brazil, the PT versus the PSDB, so center-right versus center-left. Um, but we could already feel at that point in time the polarization increasing in Brazil. We also saw this polarization being taken to the streets, right? So we have we, we start actually with street protests in 2013. We see discontent spreading throughout the country. And almost immediately after Dilma takes office, her presidency is challenged. And, you know, right after, I mean, in December 2015, so she starts, she takes office on January um, 2015. And in December 2015, the official proceedings for her impeachment begin. 
In the midst of all this, we have Operation Car Wash ongoing. And this, of course, is the corruption investigation that is um, implicating some of Brazil's most important politicians and businessmen and involving some of Brazil's big, biggest companies like Odebrecht and Petrobras. And so the, the country at that time was already facing multiple crises, right? Dilma never was able to really um, take office in a context in which she could govern. And so the economy was also suffering. And so the impeachment proceedings start in December 2015. And by August 2016, she is impeached officially. Um, her then vice president, Michel Temer from the PMDB, takes office. And he was already uh, not a very popular figure. And his um, his approval ratings keep on decreasing, reaching 2% uh, approval ratings in the country. Um, and so from, from that context, you can already get a feeling of rejection of traditional elites, uh, widespread corruption, and already uh, also getting a feeling about not very great economic scenario, right? And so like, now let's fast forward to this year's election. And what we, we have at this point is neither the PT nor the PSDB, who had been the traditional parties to compete for the presidency, having any natural candidates for the presidency. And we also have, as I mentioned, this crisis of representation in which elites of both of these parties are not trusted as they were before. So we have the PT who nominates Lula. And of course, as you know, Lula then went on to also be tried as part of the Operation Car Wash. And then he was sentenced uh, to 12 years in prison for money laundering and, and passive corruption. And he turned himself in in April 2018, but after having already started the campaign. And Lula, of course, who was Brazil's president from 2003 to 2010, had very large popular support across the country, but especially in the Northeast. So the fact that he was sent to prison already made a very large part of the population question the electoral process in and of itself. So nothing about these elections were easy. So he turned himself in, in in April 2018, but he continued to campaign as the PT's candidate for the presidency until his nomination uh, was disqualified by the electoral courts in, in August. There were a lot of challenges. Uh, a lot of people who were, on the one hand, dissatisfied with traditional elites, but also dissatisfied with the institutions questioning the institutions, both the electoral institutions, but more broadly, the institutions, um, the political institutions, even the judiciary about their fairness um, in, in, in Lula's sentence, etc. Um, and in the midst of all of this, uh, we also have high rates of unemployment. So right before the election, we have unemployment reaching 12%, with 13 million Brazilians being unemployed. Uh, we also have violence going through the roof with 62,000 homicides a year. And so we have a crisis of institutions and representation. We have an economic crisis and we have a crisis of public safety. 
So a lot of political scientists have been talking about this as the perfect storm. And so in that context, we have, as I mentioned, these traditional elites losing support. And Bolsonaro, who had been a congressman for almost three decades, coming forward to present himself as the solution to this crisis, but also as an outsider. And uh, he had never occupied executive office, nor had he been a very prominent figure in, in Congress. And so he did present himself as the this anti-corruption figure, as this outsider, but also as someone who would have the solution to Brazil's public safety crisis, which was one of the main items of the agenda. Um, and, and so that's... Uh, You know, there was a lot going on, uh, but I hope I have been able to give you a little bit of the contexts uh, under which the, these elections took place. Yeah, that sounds like sort of a bizarre, perfect storm for someone like Bolsonaro to, you know, to take power. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, even the word impeachment is contested in, in Brazil. And so a lot of the PT supporters actually call it a coup and others call it an impeachment. But what we see from this process is that actually... It wasn't the people who were the most involved in enacting this coup or this impeachment process that were that benefited from from uh, from Dilma's removal from office. Hmm. So it wasn't like Bolsonaro who launched this impeachment and then won because of it. It was like an entirely different group of politicians. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the main parties that were leading this process were the uh, PSDB and especially the PMDB. And what we see is that actually both the PMDB and the PSDB also lost considerable power in these elections. And we see that by their extensive reduction uh, in the number of seats in the legislature. So what we see in this election, even though we've been talking a lot about, about it being as an anti-PT election, it was really more of an anti-system election than an anti-PT election. Right. And so the, the traditional parties really lost. Bolsonaro's party, that was uh, a small party, gained the, the second largest number of seats in Congress this time around. Uh, and so we're seeing this this anti-system system, system uh, force that this election actually re represented. And that's kind of classic, right, in that at least in the immediate context that you've given, well, not immediate, but let's say the past since 2013, the context you've given us, um, this disillusionment with institutions, disillusionment with the political elite, that's something we're seeing with the far right in multiple locations. But then I guess what's also really interesting about Brazil is that um, Bolsonaro has been kind of reaching into the farther past and kind of presenting as maybe some part of Brazil's past, praising the dictatorship as some kind of, you know, solution and even though he's kind of gone back and forth on this um, and, you know, has recently said he's not outright advocating for authoritarianism, there's this kind of idealization of a time where things were better, right? Yeah. So one of the interesting things about Bolsonaro is that he managed to construct this image of him that brought in uh, the different kinds of right in Brazil. So we have the authoritarian right, uh, we have the social conservative right, And we have the neoliberal or economic right. And he's been able to, in one way or another, bring these three rights together. Now, when we talk about the dictatorship, so I think that there are two elements or two different types of events 
that pertain to the collective memory that have been really important in helping Bolsonaro. On the one hand, of course, and the most uh, obvious is a military dictatorship. And because of Bolsonaro's military background, and also because of his many comments in celebration of, of the dictatorship uh, and of specific military figures, this, uh, this idea has been brought up often and uh, multiple times by both sides, both Bolsonaro supporters and as well as the opposition to Bolsonaro. So for Bolsonaro supporters, oftentimes the military dictatorship had, uh, in terms of evoking memory, it would evoke the memory of order. And in the context of uh, widespread violence in the country, the notion of order was particularly uh, attractive. I mean, I think that it's important to, to talk about this in two ways, right? So on the one hand, the military dictatorship hasn't been uh, too long ago. So it's just been three decades that Brazil has uh, experienced uh, democracy, right? And so uh, since 1985. And so it hasn't been too long ago. On the other hand, uh, it seems that the dictatorship is felt as having been too long ago, almost as if democratic institutions can now be taken for granted. Bolsonaro's relationship to the military or background uh, in, in the military or even uh, celebrations of the dictatorship do not seem to have scared uh, many people or even to be taken very seriously, right? So there is this idea that, okay, he might celebrate the dictatorship, but we live under democratic times and we're not going to return to dictatorship, um, to any kind of, of dictatorship. And so what we would see a lot during these elections was this idea that we first need to enact order and then we can think about progress, which, of course, relates to the Brazilian flag, which says order and progress. Right. And so this was used as a, a quote unquote slogan to justify support for Bolsonaro. On the other hand, of course, Bolsonaro's um, opposition uh, mentioned dictatorship very often and his comments in celebration of the dictatorship and of torture as something that we had to be very careful about. And uh, in thinking and emphasizing that precisely the dictatorship hasn't been too long ago, and even if we weren't um, even if the country would not return to dictatorship, that we could see the erosion of democratic institutions. So I think that, you know, the memory of the dictatorship was, of course, really important uh, for, for both sides. But I think that there's another memory that was important. And this is, of course, a, a much more recent memory. And that is the memory of the impeachment process. And why do I say that? I say that because I think that it goes back to, to this idea that that dictatorship has perhaps been too long ago, and now we live under different times. What we saw during the impeachment was people going to the streets and asking for, for Dilma to be removed. And in a way, I think that this created this idea that if we don't like a president, we can remove them. 
Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the comments that we would see during the during the elections would be on the lines of, we need to try something new. And if it doesn't work, we'll remove him like we removed her. And so I think that this particular memory of the impeachment, uh, that in a sense uh, made people feel empowered in the political process, um, was really important in shaping their attitudes towards Bolsonaro and also justifying this idea that, you know, he does say some things that might come across as outrageous. We don't think he's going to act on them. But even if he does, we can remove him from office. That's really interesting because that's almost, that implies that the public isn't being drawn to the idea of a return to the dictatorship, but actually has so much faith in their democratic process and civil society. Yeah, absolutely. So there is this sense among a a sector of the population that the dictatorship wasn't that bad. But at the same time, there is this idea that we, we do live under democracy and we do have a say in politics. And so it is this weird mix that does seem to have led to uh, conflicting memories, but that, that in a way reinforce one another in, uh, in justifying support for Bolsonaro. Hmm. So we've talked a lot about now sort of the way that Bolsonaro, I guess you could say, weaponizes a certain form of nostalgia and the way that the particular context of Brazilian politics has made people feel like they can go for a, a bolder anti-establishment choice. But so could you maybe tell us a little bit more about who exactly are Bolsonaro's supporters? Because, of course, in every situation where we talk about nostalgia, nostalgia is for a particular sort of person, right? Like if you, you know, the obvious comparison recently with Bolsonaro has been Donald Trump. And in that situation as well, you know, it's not nostalgia for 100 percent of the population. It's a specific kind of person who ends up buying into that vision, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm hesitant to just give a very generalized answer about who is the Bolsonaro supporter, right? Yeah, Especially Because there's no single person. Exactly. And, and multiple <laughs> types of Bolsonaro supporters, right? right? But let me say this. Since the beginning of the election, what we have been seeing is that men were much more likely and more, much more uh, ready Uh, to support Bolsonaro than women. Men did vote at much greater rates for Bolsonaro than women. And what we saw was that uh, more educated and wealthier people were also more likely to vote for Bolsonaro. This was particularly true in the South and Southeast. And so if we we don't think about individuals, right, but we think about uh, perhaps municipalities or states, what we do see is that the municipalities and states that were the wealthier ones were the ones that ended up being the most supportive of Bolsonaro and uh, the less economically developed municipalities and states were the ones that su- supported the PT candidate, uh, Penona Daji. Right. So and even though women were less supportive, um, does that class divide kind of apply in the gendered context as well? So do you think, or do we know where wealthier women are more likely to support Bolsonaro? Yeah, absolutely. And so we we did see this polarization among women themselves as well, right? So um, in, in the latest, latest polls before the election, what we saw was that the women vote was basically divided uh, between Bolsonaro and uh, Adagi. And, uh, and it was, uh, you know, on average, wealthier women 
uh, especially from the South and Southeast, uh, more educated, who are more likely to vote, um, to vote for Bolsonaro. And so we did see this polarization extending to, to women themselves as well. So your research talks about gender and political participation more broadly, right? So could you give us maybe a little more background on your existing research and how the Bolsonaro uh, victory figures into that and the implications for it? Yeah, of course. So uh, as you mentioned, my research is on women's political representation in Latin America, but especially Brazil. And I look at how formal and informal institutions affect the prospects of candidate nominations and elections of, of women. And in the context of the elections, we can think about a number of ways in which this research actually uh, actually plays a role. And so let me actually start by talking about the legislative elections, because what we did see was that this anti-establishment feeling didn't only impact the presidential elections, right? It, it also extended to the legislative elections, as I hinted to before, you know, uh, it the, the legislature saw very drastic changes in composition. The traditional parties lost a lot of space and we did see high rates of turnover. And what we did see in these elections in this context is that the rejection of traditional elites. So we still saw a cap of 30 percent of women running for office in terms of candidacies. And this pertains to uh, the quota that parties have to respect. But we did see an increase in the proportion of elected women to the Chamber of Deputies. So we saw an increase in five percentage points. Uh, we saw more Black women running for office this year than ever before. Uh, and we saw some very important figures of the feminist movement in Brazil winning office. And so we have people like Aurea Carolina, people like Talidia Petroni, people like Samia Bonfim, who are now young feminists, two of them who are black feminists, taking office in the Chamber of Deputies. So we didn't see an increase in women's representation in the Senate, but we did see an increase in women's representation in um, state legislatures. Uh, and one of the things that is important to think about here, again, re referring back to my research, is that the thresholds for these women to get elected are much higher, right? Because oftentimes these women are running uh, with a much tighter budget uh, without the support of the party machinery. And so their candidacies and the fact that they won office uh, is, is very, very important. Why don't they get the support of the party machinery? Uh, simply because they're women? Not necessarily because they're women, but because they are outsiders. And so traditionally, what we've seen in Brazil is that parties tend to benefit those who are already in office and the traditional party leaders. And so and, and that goes for how funding is distributed, uh, how time on TV is distributed. So in Brazil, we have um, we have reserved time slots in TV and radio for campaigns and the ways in which these these times are distributed are not equal at all, uh, and they, they they tend to benefit these these traditional party figures. And so, you know, we outsiders and newcomers uh, often do not uh, have the same level of resources that 
that people who have been in these parties before do. An innovation or a difference in these elections was that due to decisions from the electoral court, 30% of the funding for campaigns had to be distributed to women's campaigns. Now, what we did see was a lot of creativity being used to employ these resources. And so even though the decision was to, in a way, match the quota and actually make the candidacies of the women nominated for legislative elections to to be real candidacies and not phantom candidacies, which were what we had before. So women would be registered, but not in effect be running. That's not necessarily the way in which the money was distributed, right? So uh, we had the money being used for, say, governor races or races for uh, the Senate, so so majoritarian races rather than the proportional races that are the ones in which women ended up receiving the, the least support. So that's one thing that is important to, to consider in regards to these elections, is that even though the institutions were there to promote women's candidacies, perhaps more than ever, we still saw the same patterns of resistance from these traditional elites to try to keep these women from power. But at the same time, voter dissatisfaction with the traditional elites did push for a renewal in in Congress. And this did lead to to a higher uh, representation uh, of women as well. So those are women who are trying to break into the existing institutions. And there's a lot of challenges that come with that. But then also a lot of resistance to Bolsonaro came from women organizing on the streets. And I know you're doing some really interesting research on that as well, which you spoke about at Cambridge last week. Um, could you tell us a bit about that as well? Yeah. So one of the biggest things in this election was the women's vote. And the women's vote became very important because, as I was saying before, men very early on displayed high levels of support for Bolsonaro. But there was another thing that was important. Voting in Brazil is mandatory. And you can vote for a candidate, but you can also vote blank. And there were higher rates of undecided voters among women since the beginning. And this gap was quite significant. What we saw was that candidates realized that women's votes were going to be very important, not only because they seemed to reject Bolsonaro at higher rates and therefore were perhaps more open to voting for someone else, but also because they were undecided at higher rates and therefore everyone was sort of trying to fight for their votes. What we saw was that candidates, presidential candidates, responded in two ways, one by nominating female VPs. So of the five main tickets this year, we saw that four of them were gender balanced. Uh, And of course, one of them was led by Marina Silva, but three of the other ones had VPs that were women. And then the other thing that was important was that candidates started to focus on women as voters in their spots on TV. And so they would talk to women directly. They would raise awareness about women-related public policy, and so they would talk about things like violence against women or respect for women uh, in the labor force and equal pay 
And so those were some of the things that became very important throughout the race. Now, what we saw was then the women's movement becoming more and more vocal against Bolsonaro. And this movement started online. So we saw the women's movement increasingly expressing very clearly a position against Bolsonaro. So Bolsonaro, in his time in office, had made, and, and again, that, that spans like three decades, right, had made multiple comments that were sexist and misogynistic, and women were then taking a very clear stance against his candidacy based on his positions towards women, uh, but also uh, LGBTQ groups and um and, it's, and, and also because of his racist comments, etc. So, so the women's movement didn't only focus on Bolsonaro's misogynistic uh, and sexist comments. And I think that this is something uh, important. But, but anyways, uh, the main thing was that women started leading this, uh, this opposition movement. And it started online in two ways. One was a Facebook group that was created that was called Mulheres Unidas Contra Bolsonaro, uh, United Women Against Bolsonaro. The, the the group was created and very quickly it became huge. Right now it has 3.7 million women, but but that you know the group reached that number within weeks. Sorry, I'm not sure if I missed this or if you said it already. What what's the platform? Is this a Facebook group? Yeah, it's a Facebook group with 3.7 million members. We three with 3.7 million. That's members, incredible. Okay, all of which are women. And anyway, so so it's a secret group, um, and in the beginning, people would have to be invited to it, and then you could find it. Anyways, but uh, but it reached uh, an incredible number of women, and this group started organizing both online campaigns as well as street protests. The Elino hashtag, the not him hashtag, became one of the most important hashtags of the anti-Bolsonaro campaign, and that was also something that was launched by women. And then women took it to the streets in protests that were present in all of Brazil's 26 states and the federal district, and also abroad in many countries. Of course, in these protests, it wasn't only women participating, but what was very unique about these protests was that they were all led by women and overwhelmingly composed by women. What we see after that is that women who were undecided then start to declare their votes in public opinion polls. And women started declaring their votes. And what this did was that it diminished the gap of voter support among women, of course, between Bolsonaro and Adagi. Some people started to talk about the women's movement and especially the street protests as leading women to support Bolsonaro. And I think that that's the wrong interpretation, because what we do see is that one of the most important determinants of vote was education and socioeconomic background. And so I think that what we saw after the street protests were actually women who hadn't previously, you know, declare their votes, but who were already more likely to vote for Bolsonaro anyways, and who wanted to differentiate themselves from the women who were on the streets. So why would women want to differentiate themselves from the women on the streets? 
one of the things that I think is really important to understand and emphasize is that women as men are a heterogeneous group. And so we have uh, progressive feminist uh, women as well as conservative women, right? And as I mentioned before, the interests of a very significant sector of, of women was more aligned with Bolsonaro than uh, than with Adagi. And so we, we did see, as I mentioned before, this this very similar pattern. The the women's vote didn't didn't differentiate itself as much to the to the male vote, even though we did see, of course, much higher support for Bolsonaro among men than among women. But this split in the women's vote did follow this pattern of more educated, wealthier women from the Southeast supporting Bolsonaro. You know, we can't ignore that that women are heterogeneous and have different interests and aren't all progressive. Right. So what are some of the gendered interests that would draw women to Bolsonaro? So I guess one of them that has been talked about a lot is the notion of public security and order. So violence against women is has high rates in Brazil. And so having a figure who promises security and order would be appealing. Are there other ones or is that one true? Um, yeah, so Bolsonaro himself talked about this, right? So what I mentioned that candidates started campaigning and talking about women-related issues, Bolsonaro also did that. And some of the issues that he would talk about were precisely the ones that you mentioned. So he would um, speak about femicide or uh, sexual violence against women as issues that he could handle much more firmly than other candidates. And of course, his view for it would be, and, and he talked about this openly multiple times, that women would be more empowered or, or less likely to be uh, subjects of violence if they had guns, right? If they could be could protect themselves with guns, as this was one of the campaign promises of Bolsonaro. Um, the other thing that was really important during this election was, you know, one of the things that I haven't mentioned before, but that I'm sure many people have heard, was that these elections were shaped by fake news. And one of the most important, more, most salient fake news was the fake news uh, related to the gay kit. And so there was this, this uh, basically the gay kit was this, uh, this idea that Adaji, again, the, the PT uh, candidate, had, when he was education minister, proposed that kids learn about or like were given this gay kit at school and kids as young as six years old would learn about sexuality. But the main thing about the gay kit was that it would turn kids gay. And part of this was this baby bottle that was shaped with, you know, with a penis on top. And so like there would be all of these graphic images of a baby bottle with a penis on top circulating online and saying, look, this is part of the gay kit. And this is one of the things that the PT wants to do to ch turn children gay. And sorry, aside from that being ridiculous, these are entirely fabricated, right? Yeah, absolutely. So these are entirely <laughs> fabricated. Um, it's, it's crazy that I have to say that. <laughs> but um, 
there were no baby bottles, <laughs> baby bottles being distributed in Brazil. Um, but the other thing that was going around and that is still very prominent after Bolsonaro's election is this idea that besides, you know, the gay kit, there is this idea um, that is not a new idea in, in Brazilian uh, politics that we need to make schools neutral. We need to make schools uh, nonpartisan. So actually, there has been a, a bill called Escola uh, Sem Partido, so a school without partisanship, that has been going on in Congress for for some time now, but that uh, gained more salience again with the candidacy of Bolsonaro and actually since his election, that proposes that schools uh, or that teachers shouldn't be able to talk about anything that could be construed as ideological in the classroom. And this stems uh, to a lot of things, right, from from gender in and of itself to comments against Bolsonaro. And so actually, the day after Bolsonaro got elected, a uh, one of the deputies, uh, state deputies that, that was elected from his party, uh, launched a uh, WhatsApp channel where students uh, were supposed to send recordings uh, and reports of their teachers or professors who would say, who said anything anti-Bolsonaro or anything that could be construed as ideological in the classroom. And since Bolsonaro's election, what we've seen is that things like fake news mentioned in the classroom have been understood as ideological and there have been students filming their professors talking about fake news or, of course, gender or. And so anyways, uh, this has led reasonably so professors and teachers in Brazil to be really concerned about about the future of education in the country and about their own safety in the new administration. So um, going back to what you were talking about with uh, social media, because I think that's that social media is a broader issue in a lot of these elections and in the elections of anti-establishment candidates. Do you think that this has been overall, uh, maybe this is too broad of a question, there are all of these different sort of like cleavages between people in Brazil, between different kinds of groups and also within groups, like you're saying about different kinds of women who support different kinds of candidates and remember things in different ways. Well, so how is social media aggravating all of these different groups, do you think? Yeah, that's a great question. So and and going back to this idea also of what's the side that so, social media is on, I think that so in thinking about the elections itself, what we saw was that social media was very important for Bolsonaro's campaign. So because Bolsonaro came from a very small party, he was not given a lot of time on TV or radio, and he was also not given a lot of money for his campaign. So social media was actually a very big part of where his campaign took place. And, and you can see that his name was by far the most mentioned on social media. And, and here I'm talking about Facebook and Twitter, right? And in Twitter, there, there are multiple, re- multiple studies and research that's starting to, to be published uh, that actually shows that a lot of the discussions that brought up Bolsonaro's name during the elections were actually coming from bots, so there's research being done at, at the FGV in, in Rio that 
that shows this. But there was another element about social media that was important for Bolsonaro, which was, of course, WhatsApp. And so uh, one of the things that that came to light um, just before the second round of the elections was that there had been packages of uh, WhatsApp messages that were bought precisely to support Bolsonaro's campaign. And the purpose of these WhatsApp packages was to was to share fake news on WhatsApp. And so WhatsApp was a very uh, important way of campaigning, not only because of the time that you spend on it, but also because of the engagement, the type of engagement that you do, uh, which is much more active, as well as because the people who are sending you the messages are people that you normally know and trust. And so I'm sure that if you talk to Brazilians, regardless of who they voted for, one of the things that they probably agree on after these elections is that family groups were a nightmare on WhatsApp. Everyone hated them. <laughs> we would get, I don't know, 300 messages a day. They were all memes. Uh, and, you know, and but anyways, and, and there was a lot of fake news being disseminated on WhatsApp. Um, so the context here is, of course, that in Brazil, famously, basically everyone uses WhatsApp, whereas in other countries, of course, other kinds of social media are preferred. So what you're saying, I guess, is then the specific sort of like character of WhatsApp as a platform affected the kinds of fake news that disseminated and who they disseminated through. And also how much people trust them, right? If they're coming from your family. Yeah, that's exactly right. But what I was going to say as well is that even though in terms of volume, social media might have benefited Bolsonaro and shaped his candidacy quite significantly, what we've also seen uh, is that social media has been a tool for resistance and for opposition to Bolsonaro, right? And so, as I mentioned, the Facebook group managed to gather millions of women in just days uh, and organize both online and street resistance towards Bolsonaro. We also see the voices who's, who, who perhaps... We, we wouldn't hear otherwise, becoming more prominent in social media. Um, and the other thing that we're seeing is organizing happening after Bolsonaro got elected. So one of the things that we're seeing with this women's group now is where does it go after the elections? And what is being done is having this platform as a way to organize the movement and think about is its institutionalization in the future. So one of the things that, that is being discussed is perhaps uh, turning the movement into a political party or an NGO. And this is all, again, being done online in a way that wouldn't have been possible otherwise, right? And, and so again, this is a group with 3.7 million women most of whom, of course, don't know each other, are spread across the country and also abroad. Uh, many, many, many women who are part of the group are actually Brazilians living abroad. And so this has been a way for uh, collaborating and organizing both domestically and abroad and both for online strategies of resistance as well as street and institutionalized forms of resistance. So a lot of the criticism about the Women's March in 
the States at the beginning, at least when it started, was in terms of inclusivity. And a lot of that was around trans rights and like how we conceptualize women. So in kind of figuring out an agenda for going forward and such within this group, do you see any particular problems that are coming up that women are grappling with? And is inclusivity relevant here? Is that also something that's come up in this context? Yeah, when the group was formed straight from the beginning, actually, it did say very explicitly that uh, that it was open to to trans women. Now, I've started doing some research, some survey research with members of this group. And what I did find uh, and here, you know, what I have to say, the disclaimer is that respondents are not representative. Right. So it was a convenient sample of people who saw the post and responded. As you can imagine, a group with 3.7 million women, not all of them are active. And there are a lot of posts going on. So what you see and what you don't see, in a way, determines your interaction with it. So anyway, so far, I have collected around 800 responses. And what I do find is that overwhelmingly, uh, the women on the group are white women, also Uh, more educated women, and women who identify themselves as feminists. As I mentioned, the group since the beginning was open to trans women. One of the creators of the group is a black woman from Salvador called Lujamila Teixeira. She has been very important, not only in creating the group itself, but also in determining, uh, leading the conversation about where to take the group next. And so There are important voices from Black women shaping the group's directions, but we don't see that being reflected in the group's composition, at least from the data that I have collected, right? Mm. So um, I guess drawing then again on diversity and intersectionality. So the big question for a lot of people internationally following Bolsonaro's win is, what does this mean for human rights in Brazil? And what does this mean for things like public safety and his responses to things like uh, criminal violence and whatnot? And in particular, I wanted to ask you about what you think the implications of this are going to be for marginalized groups like LGBTQ people, indigenous people, and um, non-white Brazilians. Yeah, we're already seeing that that things aren't going to be good for marginalized communities, right? We didn't even have to wait for Bolsonaro to take office to realize that. As I said before, you know, in the beginning of our conversation, one of the things that we talked about was that perhaps this memory of the dictatorship as something distant led people to think that or or to take our democratic institutions for granted. And while I do not think that we would have, you know, a return to dictatorship, what we are already beginning to see is an erosion of democratic institutions. And this doesn't even have to be, yeah, doesn't even have to be a coordinated effort, right? And so even if Bolsonaro himself doesn't say we won't protect LGBTQ rights anymore, what we we are seeing is that institutions at subnational levels are responding in a way that goes according to you know people's own understandings of what this government is and what it will represent for them and others 
And so this puts marginalized communities at a, at a particular vulnerable position. Because, of course, there is a real fear about what the federal government and, and Bolsonaro's government is going to represent for marginalized groups. One of the things that I heard a lot during these elections was that, well, but these elections aren't about you know, LGBTQ rights. They aren't about equal pay. We need to take care of more pressing issues like, like public safety or like the economy without realizing that all of these issues actually impact different people differently, right? And so they have heterogeneous effects um, that are based on race, that are based on gender, that are based on sexuality. And so one of the things that we're already seeing in terms of LGBTQ is that there has been an increase in marriages. So people trying to get uh, married while same-sex marriage is still legal. So the fear is that with Bolsonaro taking office and together with a very conservative Congress, because even though there was uh, a lot of turnover this year, we still elected a very, very conservative Congress, the most conservative Congress since the military dictatorship. And so that the combination of a Bolsonaro, of Bolsonaro in the presidency with a very conservative Congress would lead to the criminalization of same-sex marriage. And so there's a lot of people trying to get married now. Of course, his policies or his promises about public safety would impact in particular black communities and especially black men. We already know that young black men are the ones that die the most in Brazil from, from homicides, right, in Brazil. And so we know that this is going to impact this group in particular in a disproportionate way. What we also see is that even though femicide rates have decreased among white women, they have increased among black women. And so, you know, this, and, and we also know from, from research that having a gun in the household tends to increase rates of femicide. And so that is also something that could impact particularly black women. As I mentioned, uh, there's also this perhaps not coordinated impacts uh, of other state level or municipal level institutions. And I think that what I was mentioning before about the initiative of this one uh, elected deputy in creating this channel to report professors and teachers is an example of that, right? So we'll have these different initiatives that, again, are not coordinated, right? But that will nonetheless have an effect in, in people's lives and rights very directly. I think those are some really good things for us and our listeners also. I think you did a... Yeah, th thanks so much for joining us. Sorry, I, I will end with one wrap-up. Is there one takeaway thing or something you want to leave the listeners with? You know, I think that Bolsonaro's election came from a very uh, complex context uh, and of course, as a political scientist, but also as a Brazilian, we're, you know, I'm, I've been trying to understand uh, what happened, but also where we're going forward. And not only me, right? Uh, many other political scientists and Brazilians themselves. But I've been trying to, in a way, think about what are the 
what are some of the positive things that we can think about all of this? And I think that one of them is that uh, we can be sure that the women's movement is not something that only took place during the elections. I think that the women's movement is going to continue as uh, playing an important role in uh, opposing, resisting, uh, and monitoring the Bolsonaro government. Um, we will see uh, marginalized groups leading this this resistance and this opposition and, and keeping Bolsonaro in check. And so I think that this is something that that is important because it's all through these movements that we may see the emergence of new political leadership in the country. You know, if, if, if anything, I think that we should keep an eye, eye out for this ongoing resistance movement. And of course, especially being abroad, uh, the other thing that I think we should do is, of course, make sure that we are using the spaces that we have to give voice and to expand the opportunities uh, for this resistance movement to actually to actually reach more people and, and to to reach out internationally as well. I think that that's going to be very crucial in terms of our role as academics uh, outside of Brazil. That's a great takeaway. Thank you so much. Yeah. I don't think I've ever been part of a Facebook group with 3.7 million followers. So that seems pretty helpful. I think. <laughs> yeah, kind of kind of crazy. But to be honest, you know, it's not as hectic as my family group. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Valu. That was, um, yeah, that was great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Declarations. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at DeclarationsPod, like us on Facebook, and of course, tune in next time for more Declarations. Declarations.